Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day, brothers. It is, uh, it's a special day for dads, and, you know, this is a, a great way to start a Father's Day, is to come and bring our families to God's people, to the church. The church is not the building. Uh, the church is the people. Uh, and that's what, uh, for those of you who are here this morning, that's what you've done. You've brought your children to the household of God, to the people of God, to hear his praises sung and to sit under his word, whether here or back there in the classrooms. So uh, we're just reminded, even as we're here this morning with our children, worshiping God, being under his word, of the great responsibility that we have as dads. You know, there's a reason in Ephesians 5 and 6 that Paul addresses at the end of that, he addresses fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up. Uh, Because fathers are the leaders of their homes. Fathers are the heads of their households. And we have the responsibility to raise our children in the Lord. We can't farm that out to our wives. Uh, That is not a delegated task, although there will be many tasks under that umbrella that are delegated and that our wives carry out. But the spiritual strength of our homes should be fathers who lead. And so I pray today as you're here, where, wherever you are in your heart, in your life, in your family, uh, that, you would, uh, that you would obey the voice of the Lord, that we would obey the voice of the Lord daily in leading our families. When times are difficult, and for that matter, at all times, we need to hear from God, don't we? When things are hard, we need to hear from the Lord. We need His revelation. This truth is illustrated in our passage for today. And you can go ahead and go there in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 13. Here we have a great illustration as we read this passage in context. A great illustration of the fact that we need to hear from the Lord In times of suffering, sorrow, difficulty, hardship, fill in the blank. God's people have just responded to their suffering with complaining. And we know how that works. We have all undoubtedly been there. Responding to difficult situations, discomforts, uh, things in life, crises and other things that tribulations, trials, fill in the blank on that. We respond Often, or at least sometimes, with grumbling and complaining. And that's what we saw last week, that the response of the suffering of God's people in Egypt was a response of complaining. God's plan has brought Pharaoh's wrath in the short term. That's what's going on. No straw for bricks, Pharaoh says, as Moses and Aaron come to the Pharaoh and say, let the people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not, and not only that, I'm going to crack down on the Israelites. Life is about to get much more difficult for them. If they have time to go and worship their God, then they have time to gather stubble for straw to make their own bricks, or to gather their own straw to make the bricks. And moreover, Pharaoh says that 
the quota of bricks required will not be reduced. So before they had a big pile of straw, they could use that, make their bricks, however many they were required to make. Now they have to make that same amount, but are given zero brick, zero straw. They have to get it themselves. When the quota is not met, the beatings come, and specifically the beatings for the foreman. Those who lead the people who are responsible for recording the number of bricks and those who are responsible for overseeing the work of the people. So in this suffering, the foremen of the people complain. Moses complains and God responds. God speaks to his people. As we saw last week and as we'll see again today, God reveals himself to his people In this time of suffering. What does he do? The people are suffering. And God gives them his word. I think this is just instructive for us. It's illustrative for us. Of the fact that our resting place. During times of suffering. Is the word of God. That's it. That's our solace. God will be our rock. In so far as scripture is our rock. God doesn't come to us in a, in a vacuum in the, in the, out of the middle of nowhere. God comes to us by means of his word. And it is in those times of hardship and suffering that we must find our rest in the word of God. Now we have heard uh, testimonies before of individuals who suffered a great deal who have spoken in small groups or before the church about the way that God has used his word in those times of suffering and some of those immense suffering. So we could go around this morning and we could talk about that. All the ways that God has used his word in times where we felt crushed, burdened, and how picking up the word of God or hearing a sermon or listening to a song saturated with scripture or talking with a Christian friend has lifted up our hearts and brought us peace. We need to hear from God, and we do that through his word. Last week, we saw God's grace and patience in his response to Moses' complaining. After the foreman cursed Moses, he says this to God at the end of chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. These are bold words, by the way. We read these coming out of the mouth of Moses, and we're just kind of, our our mouths should be open. We should hear that and just be surprised that Moses would speak to God in this way. As we said last week, as we talked about last week, this does show us the way that we should approach God in part with total transparency, bearing our hearts before God, coming boldly to the throne of grace, lamenting even. And if we have thoughts and we have these feelings, we might as well bring them to God verbally because he already knows they're there. They're in our hearts. So in part here, we are instructed in that transparency, but also I think we are meant to say, whoa, Moses, I don't want to level accusations against the Lord. This is what he says, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Or brought trouble on this people. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Wow! 
You just haven't done anything, God. You have been silent, unresponsive. You who say that you hear and remember and see, it doesn't seem that you are doing any of that right now. And we saw the first part of God's response in chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, and I think there it's God's strong hand, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. What do we find here? God responding this, this very bold and even disrespectful way of approaching the Lord from Moses in his desperation. And God's response is grace, patience, and reassurance. Let me just say this. This is Father's Day. We're, we're witnessing the Father. Do we respond to our children with grace, with patience, with a tender heart? sympathizing with them, understanding, and with reassurance in our words, in our voices, even when they are in the wrong, totally in the wrong. Graciousness, patience, love, tenderheartedness, that's the way of our Father, and that ought to be the way of every earthly father. No rage, no anger, no flying off the handle, no parenting out of personal annoyance, frustration, or our own inconvenience, but relating to our children in this gracious and patient, loving way. That's the way of the Father, and we need His grace every day. We need his grace every day. The the number one thing as fathers that we need is prayer. Prayer to God to ask him to help us. To help us with self-control. To help us to, to remember our own sinfulness as we discipline and shepherd the sinfulness of our children. To patiently endure with them in their folly. The way our Heavenly Father patiently endures with so much of my and our folly as grown men who sometimes act like little kids, who sometimes act like our children. May God be gracious to us that we might be gracious with our kids. So today we get the second part of God's response. That was the first part, verse 1. The second part of God's response runs from verse 2 up through verse 8. And we get one distinct unit here bracketed by these words. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So just look with me for a moment at the text. I want you to, to see this, not to just hear me say it, but I want you to see it. Look at the beginning and the end of the passage. Well, not our whole passage, but verses 2 to 8. Verse 2, I am Yahweh. Then go to the very end. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. And then look in the middle. Verse 6, I am Yahweh. And then verse 7, I am Yahweh, your 
God. So the title for the sermon this morning is Yahweh's Personal Message. You'll see this up here on the screen, Yahweh's Personal Message. The message itself from the Lord comes in verses 2 to 8. That is the heart of this passage. And we've got a bit of it over there on our poster Uh, One of the things I do at the beginning of a series, as I've said before, is I try to select two passages that I think are most significant in all of the book. And that is very difficult. Sometimes it's really just choosing, uh, just drawing one (laughs) because they're just so good. Uh, But this is one of those. This is, some have called this passage here, verses 2 to 8, the core of Exodus. Uh, And some have called it the core to all of Old Testament theology. What we find here as God speaks personally to his people. So the message itself comes in verses 2 to 8. That whole section was a little long for our poster, so we just did 6 to 8. And we read the response to that message in verses 9 to 13. So the message 2 to 8, the response, verses 9 to 13. And in that response in 9 to 13, we also get God's response to their response. And so you could say the message continues beyond the message. God delivers it, and then God responds to their response. If you, if you would, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 13. This is the Word of God. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established, by the way, we're going to talk about uh, the translation of that last part in a moment. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You can go ahead and be seated. We are getting close to the plagues. They are coming. The anticipation is thick. And we're watching the contest, begin, the, 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 the base for the contest being laid. 
the foundation for the contest that is going to ensue as God begins to bring the plagues on the obstinate Pharaoh. Pharaoh will reject, Pharaoh will reject, and God will escalate those plagues going all the way up to the death of the firstborn as he brings his people out. And God will even work in Pharaoh's heart in such a way that he pursues the Israelites into the wilderness and God will swallow Egypt or the Egyptian soldiers with the sea. So all of this is being anticipated as this contest is being Set up, And as we seek God shepherding his people, God pastoring, loving his people. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and illumination on his word. Father, we thank you that you have brought us here this Father's Day, that we are here with your people. God, we pray that you would work in each of us as fathers. God, that you would help us to be godly men. Help us to be men who seek you above all of our earthly pursuits. All the the dreams and goals and pleasures and, and desires and enjoyments, comforts of this life would be absolutely subordinate to the sovereign hand of our King. Lord, that we would serve you and not the gods of Egypt not the gods of Canaan. Lord, that we would be men who say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, would that be the case for all of us men? And would you be merciful and gracious to us as fathers? Would you help us daily to exercise self-control, to listen to our children, to be tender-hearted and kind, to be firm in our resolve, our loving resolve to discipline them as we find throughout Scripture, as Proverbs instructs us in so many times that the man who fails to discipline his child hates his child. Would we not hate our children in failing to obey you in disciplining them. Lord, but would we do this with such gentleness and sympathy and care and tender-heartedness? Would we do this as ambassadors of yours, God? Not out of our own frustrations or annoyances or anger, but would we discipline our children because you, our God, their maker, require it of us? And we trust you in your word, regardless of what the world says, we trust you in your word that it is for their good and your glory. God, we are not raising evolved apes who need to behave well in society. We are raising future worshipers of the living God who hope in God who worship God when all the world is worshiping idols. Lord, would you help us in this great task. We pray for this time together in your word, that you would bless what is preached, God, that you would illuminate your word, that all of us would hear it with our ears and our hearts, and that we would leave changed, and that we would leave ready with firm resolve to obey you. Thank you for the comfort you bring us, Lord, from your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Yahweh 
gives his personal and reassuring message, we see three things. Three things that come with this in within this message, and I'm including the response to the response there at the end, verses 9 to 13. So here they are. The points are on the screen. We have the past relationship in verses 2 to 5, the future rescue, verses 6 to 8, and then finally the present requirement in verses 9 to 13. So let's begin with the past relationship. Look at verses 2 to 5. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Precious words to Moses' ears, regardless of his response. Precious words to our ears as we, the people of God, read these words and recognize that they, have, they, they burst with implications for us as God's people now. When God speaks to his people, he reveals himself. God's words are about God. They come personally and powerfully from him to us. They are truthful and powerful because they are backed by his character. God's word can be trusted because God can be trusted. Yes, let's read books about the reliability of Scripture. Let's talk about translations. Let's talk about manuscript transmission throughout the history of the church up until the printing press. Let's talk about the ways that the Gospels work together and should not be regarded as contradictions. Let's talk about the archaeology and the history and all of the things that support the truthfulness of God's word, the reliability of God's word. But listen, as God's people, our confidence in the word of God is not because some guy found something in the desert or because some historian has marshaled the data in such a way that we find it persuasive and convincing. Our confidence in the word of God comes from our confidence in God himself. Our doctrine of scripture derives from our doctrine of God. Scripture is truthful because God cannot lie. Because God is trustworthy and truthful. Our doctrine of scripture begins here. And that's what we must teach our children. We must teach our children that to trust God is to trust his word. If God can make the heavens and the earth, he can inspire his word in such a way that it is infallible and inerrant. And he can preserve his word through human means throughout history so that we can open up our Bibles today and we can read the word of God. Nowhere is this relationship between God and his word illustrated better than in Exodus chapter 6, where everything that God says is backed by his divine name. He puts his stamp on all of it. 
It is as though he is providing his signature at every point in the message. You know, think about that. Typically, we, we send a letter and we'll sign it at the end. But by God saying constantly throughout this message, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, it is as though God uh, can't even get a few words out before he has to sign it. Because he wants to make clear to his people that this comes from his character. It comes from his authority. It comes from his power. The Lord is also unpacking his name. So from the other way, we've got to look at it from both ways. From the name to the word, but also from the word back to the name. What is God doing with all of this? He is unpacking his name, as he reassures and promises, he is providing further revelation of who he is as Yahweh. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Well, look at what's before us. Read verses 2 to 8. Listen to the way God describes his actions. What does God do? And that tells us about his name. It tells us about his nature, his character, who he is. He is providing further revelation of himself as Yahweh. So let me just ask you guys this question this morning. Think about this. How do you read the Bible? When you pick up the Bible in the morning, the evening, whenever, as you're listening to it, maybe on a jog, whatever it is, whenever it is that you read God's word, are you reading scripture to know God's name? What's your name, God? Who are you, God? That is the question. That's the Bible reading question. And it should dominate all of our Bible reading. The whole idea that we come to the Bible in this kind of very uh, field guide oriented way. We're, just, we're really just going there to look for life advice. Of course God gives us all kinds of life advice. But it's born out of his character. It's born out of the truth of the gospel. We don't go to the Bible as a field guide just to find advice for life. We go to the Bible to know the Lord. We go to the Bible to know who the living God is. What is your name, God? Tell me your name. That's what we should say. Every time we pick up a copy of God's word. This message begins with Yahweh's message to Moses himself, which runs up through verse 5. And the focus here, as we look at what Yahweh says to Moses, the focus is on the past. Notice the, the temporal breakdown of this passage. The focus here is on the past, what God has done. And from beginning to end, the emphasis is on relationship. On covenant, the bond between God and his people through promise. The Lord, or Yahweh, is the God who intimately knew the patriarchs. That's how he reveals himself here to Moses. He intimately knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So verse 3, he appeared to them and made himself known to them. As El Shaddai, God Almighty, but also, and catch this, this is important, also as Yahweh. I agree with a number of commentators who argue that the preferred translation of the Hebrew here really should involve a question. 
rather than a statement. And I think if you have an NIV somewhere at home, or even if you have that here, they actually give a note to that effect. You don't get that note here in the ESV, but in the NIV, I think you get a note to that effect. But the end of it, the preferable reading for the end of it, or translation for the end of it, is, but by my name Yahweh did I not make myself known to them? Question mark. So in other words, we have here at the end of this a question. I did not make myself known to them as Yahweh is what we're reading in the ESV. But a better way to understand the Hebrew is to take this as a question. Did I not make myself known to them as Yahweh? Many commentators have suggested that the Hebrew is conveying a question here at the end of the verse. And this makes perfect sense to us because we see God revealing himself as Yahweh and being referred to as Yahweh throughout Genesis. Genesis 15, 7, to Abraham, I am Yahweh. God is speaking to Abraham. He calls himself Yahweh, not just El Shaddai, which we got often, God Almighty, but also as Yahweh. I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Or 28, 13, to Jacob, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So by taking the Hebrew in this way and rendering the end of verse 3 as a question, it then begins to work with what we've already seen in Genesis, and that is that God is not just revealing himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but also in this very personal, covenantal way as Yahweh. And we find this, by the way, on the lips of Eve at the beginning, the very beginning of Genesis. And we see there that the descendants of Seth began to call on the name of Yahweh, began to call on the name of the Lord. So the name of God has been known since creation, all the way back to Adam and Eve. So God tells Moses that he revealed himself as El Shaddai and Yahweh to the patriarchs. And where God reveals his name... He enters into a relationship. And that relationship is called a covenant. This is a Bible word. It's not a word that you tend to use outside of church. Uh, It's not a word we hear very often, although sometimes we speak of the covenant of marriage. But that tends to be Christians who are speaking about marriage in that way. This relationship between God and his people is in a covenant. And that is what forms the basis of God's relating to his people. And a covenant is centered on promise. God relates to us by means of his promise. Do you understand then how important faith is? Faith is not just this thing, this dangling thing that we need. Oh yeah, we need faith. No, no, no. The reason faith is so important is because the basis of the relationship we have with the Lord is covenant based on promise. And what do you do with promises? You believe them. You trust them. God makes promises, and we believe those promises. And it is in that faith in him as God that we are justified, we are told in the beginning of Romans and throughout the New Testament, and we enter into a relationship of right standing before God through the blood of Christ, justified by faith. Faith in what? The promises of God through the death burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 4 says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, 
the land in which they lived as sojourners. God's covenantal promises to the patriarchs centered on two big things. There's a lot of aspects to it. We, we, could, we could add things. But the two biggies are land and offspring. And you'll remember as we were going through Genesis, it was constant. Land, offspring. Land, offspring. Constantly seeing these promises. God had come to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, and he promised offspring. Nations would come from you, God promised. A great nation, one great nation in particular, will come from you, God promised. Blessings would come to your offspring. Kings would come from your offspring. And one of those offspring would be the means by which God blessed the whole world. He would possess the gate of his enemies. And at the end of Genesis, we read Jacob talking to his sons and telling Judah that his future descendant will be the great king. The promise of offspring anticipates Christ, and it is central to the promises given to the patriarchs. The other is land, the land of Canaan. Remember, Abraham had migrated from Ur, from Mesopotamia, to the little strip of, of, of land uh, to the east of the Mediterranean Sea called Palestine today as we think of it. But it was the land of the Canaanites. It was the land of Canaan. They were sojourners in the land of Canaan, but they will one day be owners of that land. God promised the patriarchs they would own the land. And so Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, at the very end of Genesis, as all the sons of Jacob have come to Egypt, Joseph says this, To his brothers, as he's about to die, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. Listen to the confidence in his voice. You have that confidence in the Lord? That confidence that Jesus Christ is coming back? That confidence that God will preserve you until the end? That confidence that you will not see death ultimately? You've passed from death to life and you will move from embodied existence to disembodied existence in the presence of Christ at your death? waiting to be resurrected. Listen to the confidence of the people of God in faith. I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up. No, no, no question. There's no question. God will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So now, God tells Moses in verse 5 that he has remembered this covenant. In other words, he has determined to act to bring these covenant promises to fulfillment. And so verse 5 says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I have remembered my covenant. Guess what? God remembers his covenant through the blood of Christ for us right now. And Jesus Christ stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now. Not that God the Father would forget, ever. But the confidence we have in knowing that our high priest is there, always interceding for his saints. This is where our hope is built. What's your hope built on? That you're going to get that great job one day? 
that you're going to be able to retire uh, in some island place, some beautiful exotic paradise? What, 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 is your, what is your hope this morning? Really? I'm being serious and real right down to the specifics because you'll know your hope by how you live. What are you banking on? What are you hoping in? Our hope must be built on the fact that God never forgets or fails in his promises. His promises through Jesus Christ will come to fruition. That's our only hope in life and death. We could all, at any point, any of us, die. Unexpectedly, it happens all the time, all over the world. And all those hopes built of sand and hypotheticals crash. We're wasting our time daydreaming on earthly treasures and not hoping in the living God. Living as Canaanites. We're reading Judges right now. Living as Canaanites instead of as the people of God. Those grafted into the household of God. So God roots his message here in the past, but then he moves to the future. And that brings us to our second point, the future rescue. Look with me at verses 6 to 8, or if you, if you can see it, you can read it off the poster if you'd like. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Here's the stamp. I am Yahweh. It's mighty. It's just mighty. When God speaks, he speaks mightily. Because his word is power. We get this theology very much at the very beginning of the Bible. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God's word is the mightiest conceivable force. And God's word is a person. God spoke. He spoke all things into existence through his eternal word. The second person of the Trinity who became flesh. And the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the might of God's word. We think about the might of the word incarnate, the Christ, who demonstrated the power of God's word as he healed, cast out demons, and forgave sins. God continues to reveal himself through his message as he extends the message to the people of Israel as a whole. So before, verses 2 to 5, he's speaking to Moses. Here, verses 6 to 8, this is the message for the people. And here the focus is on the future, what God will do. Now the grammar are still past tense verbs, but the context here shows us that this is future tense. God is saying what he is going to do. After once again declaring his name, another stamp, I am Yahweh, he launches into a barrage of verbs 
actions that he will carry out for his people Israel. You gotta love this. Just, just look at it. I'm gonna go through it very quickly. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. Breathe. Lots of verbs. Lots of divine activity. This is what I, your God, the God, will do. And this is what I will do for you. Three main ideas surface here. And you can write these down if you would like. We'll go through each of them. Redemption, adoption, and inheritance. Redemption, adoption, and inheritance. As we think about the future rescue, those are the three specific things that the Lord highlights. So first, redemption. Verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel... I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is a a buying back. There's a lot packed into this notion of redemption. It is a buying back. It is a restoring. It is a defending. We think about the kinsman redeemer. It's a defending of those who need to be supported who are oppressed in some way. This is all of these things, and it comes with punishment for the oppressors. Notice that here. This redemption for his people comes with punishment for those who are oppressing his people. God's outstretched mighty arm will pour out judgment on Israel's enemies. For centuries, Egypt has hated and mistreated his people. Now it is time for God's judgment to fall on them. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14, talked about this. God revealed this to Abraham at the very beginning. At the very beginning of the the formation of this people of God in the one patriarch, God told him all of this was going to happen. This is what he said. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain. By the way, once again, know for certain. God's word is always sure. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God had told Abraham before, as he was Abram at the time, God had told him that this would happen. And here we see it happening. Second, adoption. We see redemption, and second, we see adoption. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now here, this is important for us as we think about our own salvation. What is the purpose of redemption? Why did God redeem you, Christian? What's his purpose Answer, that we would belong to him. That's it. God redeemed us. He delivers, he restores, and he defends his people to bring them to himself. Genesis 17, 7, he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Listen to this, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
The greatest thing that God has ever done for you, Christian, is to bring you to himself. That's it. That's the greatest thing we have. When we get to heaven, we will want to see God and know God and be with God, period. Because to be saved, to be redeemed, is to know God. That's the whole purpose for our salvation. God has already declared that Israel is his firstborn son. Chapter 4, verse 22. And here we see God declaring that he will bring the nation as a whole into covenant relationship with himself as a nation. They will know him as their God, collectively as Israel. This will happen at the mountain of God, at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, where he will bring the people as a whole into covenant with himself. So, Do you think about your salvation in that way? That you were saved to know God. It's not about getting out of hell. It's about having God. You know, this is one way to know if you may be a false convert. If you think about salvation merely as, whew, don't have to go to hell. Don't have to go to that awful place. It's all about what you don't now have to endure. Or maybe it's all about what you might be able to get, as you perceive it, from God. But, but in all that mix, in all that business about you getting out of hell, which is true, and in all that business about what you may get from God, maybe for you, there, there, God's just missing. There's just no God there. There's no relationship with God there. No desire to know God, to walk with God there. We'll know this by our affections and our Bible reading and prayer. If you love God and want to know God, it will show up in your passions and your affections. You have new taste buds and they're for God and God's things. But you'll also know that by your desire to read the Bible in prayer. No desire to read the Bible in prayer, no God. If you have no desire to commune with him, then you don't know him. To know him is to want to commune with him. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what it is to have salvation, eternal lives to know God. Finally, we get inheritance. Look at verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. With covenant comes covenant blessings. With sonship comes inheritance. And this is where the land promise comes in. As, we, as they will belong to God as his people, you see the inheritance of that sonship and belonging through the land. Not only will God bring his people out of Egypt, he will bring them into the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will find rest in their own land. Now at this point, we need to take a step back And take all of this in explicitly as Christians. What we are reading here is also how God saved us. 
The Exodus really is a picture of salvation through Christ. I want to show you that briefly here. So we have been redeemed from slavery to sin. So we see redemption, adoption, and inheritance. We have been redeemed from slavery to sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have been adopted as sons, those who cry out, Abba, Father, in our relationship to God. So Romans 8, 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And we have been promised a future inheritance, eternal life reserved in heaven for us, a new earth remade for us. So what we're witnessing here as God says what he is going to do for the people of Israel, as God declares his salvation of Israel, his rescue of Israel, that we have an anticipation of what God has done for us through Christ. 1 Peter 1.4, we have been Born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will inherit all of the land, because the new heaven and new earth will be ours. So, people of God, take hold of the future rescue that our Heavenly Father has promised to us, though we be afflicted now, it is coming. This light and momentary affliction that we experience now in this life is eclipsed by the future rescue. As we finish up this morning, we get the present requirement. We'll go through this a little more quickly, verses 9 to 13. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So how did Israel and their leader, Moses, respond to this glorious message from Yahweh? Just one word, discouragement. Even in the face, this tells us a lot about our own Christian life, even in the face of such richness, such grandiose reminders, such a barrage of promises, such a declaration of God's name, even in the face of of such magnificent revelation, this is how they respond. The people as a whole, verse 9, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They are utterly beat down with oppression and slavery, and especially due to recent events. And Moses, we see in verse 12, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? Moses is overcome by his own inadequacy and defeat. If the people haven't listened to him, how will Pharaoh listen to him? And he even returns to one of his old objections about his inability to speak. Well, at this point, 
He has seen the signs. At this point, he has spoken to the people from the Lord. He has seen the people believe the word and worship Yahweh. But he just circles, circles right on back to those old objections before all of this happened. Inadequacy, defeat, inability to speak well. What am I even doing? I can't do it, God. So here's where I want to leave us this morning as we close. How does God respond to their response? This is, this is important. Well, once again, we see the grace and patience like a loving father shepherding his child. We see it here once again. But the big thing that I want you to see at this point that God does in his response is he holds the plan together. It's as though if it were up to the people, the train would just go right off the tracks. You have the Israel train totally defeated, oppressed. They've lost all encouragement. Moses feels like a total failure, defeated. And in all of this, in all of God's people's weakness, in all of God's people's inabilities, in all of God's people's discouragement, and yes, even sin, God holds the train together and keeps it moving down the track. He pushes his people forward. In the midst of their suffering, he graciously and patiently keeps the focus on the mission, on his redemptive plan. He does this first in verse 11. Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But it is most striking in the final verse, verse 13. After all that Moses says, God simply puts him back on track. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge or gave them a command. It's almost as though the Lord says, enough, Moses, enough. This is what you must do. Gave them a charge, gave them a command about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In light of the past relationship and the future rescue, the only thing for Moses to do is obey the Lord's command. This is the present requirement. This is what Moses must do. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's unmet expectations. Yes, things are not going to Moses and Aaron's plan or to the Israelites' plan, especially the foreman's plan. But the only thing to do, the present requirement between the past covenant promises and faithfulness and the future fulfillment and rescue is to obey the Lord's command. And let me just say this to us this morning as we leave. This is where we are today. This is where we are in salvation history. Standing between what God has done in the past and what he promises to do in the future. No matter what hardships come our way, the present requirement is to carry out the Lord's work. We could say it this way. We must stop whining. We must stop complaining. We must stop grumbling. We must stop losing heart and losing confidence in God's word. 
We must stop focusing on our own troubles and on our own circumstances. And we must get on with the work of the Lord until we fall over dead. That's our job. We've got too much to do to be groveling, to be just sitting around, drinking up our troubles, meditating on our hardships, grumbling about all the things in life that aren't working out the way we want them to. To obey our Lord, that is what we must do in the present. That is our present requirement, knowing that the same thing he told Moses is also true for us today. At the very beginning, when he first called Moses, chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you, no matter what. And that is what God says to his people today, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us such precious promises and such precious reminders of your goodness, your promises, your faithfulness, your power, what you will do and what you have done, and what you're doing now in giving us strength. Lord, help us to bear up under the trials of life, listening to the personal message of our Abba Father, believing your word, clinging to you, and serving you while breath goes in and comes out of our lungs. Be merciful to us, we pray, and we thank you for this time to remember what you did in the past as we come to the Lord's Supper. Would we remember well the work of our Savior? In Jesus' name, amen.